Hey Conjurers, I'm Steph. And I'm Sham. Happy Happy St. Patrick's Day! What's not to love about this holiday? Everything is green and Irish themed. There are parades and festivals, and of course there's booze. It's a pretty good time. And I've heard no one does St. Patrick's Day like New York. Unfortunately, sometimes the alcohol-fueled partying takes a turn for the worst. On St. Patrick's Day 1997 in Manhattan, New York, 17-year-old Michael Sardi was one of millions on the streets watching the annual St. Patrick's Day parade. Half Irish and half Italian, he stood proudly on the corner of Madison Avenue and 59th Street, waiting to see his big brother march past. Michael's brother, James Watt, was 13 years older than him, and as a New York City corrections officer, he marched in the parade every year. The brothers had plans to meet at the famous toy store FAO Shorts after the parade, but tragically, Michael would never make it. As soon as the parade ended, James was found by police and told to get to New York Hospital immediately. Michael was on the verge of death. At about 2 p.m. that afternoon, five or six young men ranging from their late teens to early 20s attacked Michael out of nowhere. They were all beating on Michael together. He would stumble, fall, get up, and they would start punching and kicking him again. He tried desperately to get away, but there were just too many of them. Onlookers screamed and begged them to stop. One tourist caught the attack on video, but the group of men didn't seem to care. At one point, Michael laid on the ground as they continued to kick him. One guy then took a running start and kicked Michael right in the head. That final kick left Michael brain dead. A traffic enforcement agent that witnessed the attack stated that the last kicker quoted a line from the movie A Bronx Tale when he delivered what turned out to be the fatal blow. He said, and I quote, look at me, I'm the one who did this to you, end quote. Once Michael was limp, the men ran off and left him there in the street. They attacked him in broad daylight. Clearly, they were willing to risk their identity being known. I understand no one jumping in because you don't know what these men were capable of, but that must have been traumatizing to go through, let alone watch. Absolutely. People were yelling at them to stop, but physically getting involved? At that point, it's very dangerous. Please tell me they got this boy some help. An EMT trainee revived Michael long enough for EMS to get him to the closest hospital, where doctors placed him in a medically induced coma. He remained on life support for 21 days, with his family hoping for a miracle that never came. He just laid there in that hospital bed with his eyes open and unblinking. He had no brain function at all. The life support machine was shut off on April 7, 1997 two weeks before his 18th birthday. His brother James held him in his arms until Michael turned cold and blue. Michael's mom Pat and stepfather Gus were devastated and are still haunted by the memory of seeing Michael like that. Investigators used both the videotape handed over by the tourist and accounts from several witnesses to identify 18-year-old Jason Andrade as the one who dealt the final vicious kick. 
The two others believed to be seen on the video, Thomas Warnock, who was 16, and James Whiffen, who was 19, were also arrested, and all three were charged with murder two and gang assault. During trial, there was some confusion with the witnesses about the hair color of the final kicker and whether or not he had been wearing a hat. That was enough to convince a jury that the witnesses were unreliable and the three boys were acquitted. There wasn't substantial enough evidence, even with the video footage. It just wasn't enough to convict. Two others, Michael Papianis and Billy Syverst, both 20 years old, were not featured on the video and made a deal with prosecutors pleading guilty to rioting. With rioting being a misdemeanor, they were sentenced to probation with no jail time. Wow. They got off scot-free, and oh my god, why must these kids always be taken so close to their birthdays? I feel so bad for his brother. He probably holds on to so much guilt from that day. For sure. I do understand, though, that the jury was probably super nervous about convicting children for murder if the witnesses might be wrong, you know? Yeah, that's totally understandable. But I'm sure this verdict didn't sit well with Michael's family. When the verdict was read in the crowded courtroom, the family members of the boys being charged sagged with relief, while Michael's family cried that the acquittal was an injustice. James jumped up and had to be restrained by court officers as the jury read the final not guilty verdict. Michael's mom, Pat, screamed that they all have blood on their hands as she was led from the courtroom. Jason's father, Robert, said the family was relieved, but that there would be no celebration from them. A boy is still dead, he explained. Around the same time Michael was attacked that St. Patrick's Day, drunken brawls had broken out all along Madison Avenue. As many as 20 teenagers from Brooklyn squared off against another group of teens from the Bronx. Both groups had been drinking heavily that day and were itching for a fight. Most of the fights that broke out lasted only a few minutes and then went their separate ways with no serious injuries. It was believed the Brooklyn teens mistook Michael as a member of a rival crew. They aggressively confronted Michael as he stood watching the parade. The argument quickly escalated and Michael was thrown to the ground. There were so many fights and many had been drinking that day. It was hard for witnesses to be sure of what they had seen. I've never understood why people continue to drink if it sparks anger inside. What's the point of drinking for fun if you're going to end up being a buzzkill every time? Right? Why do so many people turn violent when they drink? I just end up hugging people I barely know. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, the happy drunk. Who was Michael? Were you able to find any background on him? In the Bronx neighborhood where Michael lived, his friends and neighbors said that he was not the type of teenager who instigated fights. He was quiet and unassuming, never a loud mouth. His co-workers even said if you gave him a jab, he would never come back at you with a snarky response. He was laid back, responsible, and very polite. Michael grew up on a quiet street of row houses with his mom, stepdad, and older brother. The thing he loved most was sports. He played baseball on a team at school and loved making the short trip to Edgewater Park to play football with his friends. If he wasn't playing sports, he was at the beach, hanging out with all of his friends. James quit his job after Michael's death and never returned to the parade that he used to love. He knows the city can't redo a murder trial, but he's still hoping for some kind of vindication for his little brother. 
A memorial wall that had been done in Michael's honor fell to ruin years after his death. As the wall started to crumble, Michael's mom, Pat, stopped visiting it. It was too painful of a reminder that her life had also been broken by the death of her son. She moved out of the Bronx because she said it was nothing but a sad reminder of the life her son could have had. On the 15th anniversary of his death, his longtime friend, Karen Siriani, wanted to bring the mural back to life. Using social media, she and other friends of Michael's raised over $1,000 to fund the project. Any remaining funds were donated to Crime Victim Support Services of the North Bronx. I think these guys thought Michael was someone else. Nothing indicates that he was about that gang life or that he knew these guys. I agree. In their drunken state, they most likely assumed he was one of the other groups they were fighting. Well, this was a sad story, and as a parent, I don't know how I would ever prepare my child for such a random act of violence. It's not only teenagers overindulging on St. Patrick's Day and bringing to life their most violent intentions. Shan will tell us about another disturbing case after this short break. On March 17th of 1981, New York City police officer Daniel Gallagher was assigned to patrol the city's St. Patrick's Day parade. Not wanting to miss out on all the fun, Daniel started drinking around noon and continued throughout his tour of duty. Once the parade was over, he continued to stop for drinks on his way back to the precinct in Queens. Once he was officially off duty, he started bar hopping and continued partying into the early hours of the morning. Eventually, he ended up at Fife and Drum Tavern in Brentwood, where he continued to drink among many fellow New York City police officers, including Officer David McAteer and Sergeant Jack Sweeney. The three men knew of each other, but had never spent any time together previously. But as alcohol often does, shared drinks brought them together and they left the tavern fast and close friends. At approximately 4 a.m., the three of them moved the party to David's house, where they, you guess it, continued to drink. They sat around telling stories and jokes until about 8 a.m., when they yet again moved the party. Jack had weed at his place, and they all thought that that sounded like a brilliant idea. At Jack's, they smoked a little marijuana and drank some more beer, until they all passed out around 9.30 a.m. Jeez, that's some hardcore partying. The idea that cops were drinking that much while on duty is terrifying. None of us makes good choices while drinking. Not only are you drinking and on drugs, but you're likely carrying a deadly weapon. None of those are a good combo. They sound like a bunch of low-life frat guys with zero responsibilities. Right? It doesn't sound like the behavior the New York City Police Department would officially condone. (laughs) Did they regret their decisions once they woke up? The short nap cleared David's mind enough for him to realize that it was time for the party to end. But before he had even gotten up, Daniel and Jack were back at it again with the wine. David convinced them that it was time to go back to his place to get their own cars and head back to their own houses to sleep it off. They all got in David's car and he drove the 15 minutes to his house. By the time they arrived at his place, it was clear to him that neither Daniel or Jack were in any condition to drive. He turned right back around and started driving them home himself. Not really knowing where Daniel lived, David asked for directions, but Daniel just slurred back, don't worry about it. David ignored the incoherent conversation being had between Daniel and Jack as he tried to focus on the unfamiliar streets. Suddenly, he heard multiple explosions right next to his right ear. 
He immediately ducked his head and turned to see Daniel holding his gun and pointing it over at the back seat towards Jack. David stopped the car and grabbed the gun from Daniel. David got out of the car and ran around to the back where Jack was bleeding out from one gunshot wound in the neck and one in the chest. The third shot had missed and lodged in the seat of the car. David did everything he could to save Jack, but he was bleeding out too fast. Wow, that escalated quickly. What the hell? Yeah, I'm sure no one saw that coming. What did Daniel do after randomly shooting Jack? Daniel got out of the car and stood silently on the sidewalk nearby until at some point his wife was there leading him into a nearby house. He started begging her to help him and told her that some people were trying to kill him. When police arrived on the scene, they found Daniel sprawled on the sofa of someone who lived nearby crying hysterically. They could tell he was drunk because his eyes were glassy, his speech was still badly slurred, and he reeked of alcohol. Nevertheless, he seemed aware enough to know what was going on around him to answer their questions. He was very confused by the questions being asked, but he told a series of events as best as he could remember. He said he remembers smoking a little weed at Jack's house and falling asleep. The next thing he remembers is waking up in David's car. Daniel was up front next to David who was driving. Then he heard a voice he didn't recognize asking, Can we trust this guy? Is he going to be a problem for us? He says he then felt a series of slaps on the back of his head. The next thing he remembers is standing on the side of the road and seeing his wife coming towards him. He says he doesn't remember anything else from that day. Okay, that's a weird hallucination to have. I guess Jack could have slapped him in the back of the head. I mean, Jack was drunk too, but that still isn't a reason to shoot someone. Right. It sounds like he definitely knows more than he's presenting. Okay, a cop killed another cop. They arrested him, right? Absolutely. When the police read him his Miranda rights, he snapped that he knew his rights. He had been an officer for 10 years. He insisted he knew that he shot Jack, but that he did it because he thought the men in the car were going to kill him. A blood test performed at 3.50 p.m. that day, about five hours after Daniel had consumed his last drink, revealed that he had a 0.19 blood alcohol level, which means his blood alcohol level would have been approximately 0.29 five hours earlier when the shooting happened. Okay, the current legal limit is 0.08% blood alcohol. Even at this level, you'll lose some coordination, your reaction times will be slower, and even your hearing will get worse. At a blood alcohol level of 0.29%, you would be basically in a stupor, feeling confused, dazed, and disoriented. Standing and walking probably would have required help at that point. In fact, a 0.30%, only 0.01% higher than what his was, is where you see most people completely unconscious, and there's a lot more potential for sudden death at that point. It's likely he made up a scenario in his head that wasn't actually happening and took his friend's life. He would have been really messed up after that much booze, but I still don't understand why so many drunk people resort to violence. What happened at the trial? In court, the physical evidence wasn't surprising. The autopsy, ballistics tests, and firearm discharge residue tests showed that the two bullets recovered from Jack's body had been fired from Daniel's gun, from a distance of no more than 18 inches away. More important was the testimony about Daniel's psychological state at the time of the murder. 
The defense experts testified that he had been incapable of rational judgment and unable to form the intent to kill Jack because of his advanced state of intoxication. Coupled with his use of marijuana and lack of sleep, it all likely caused him to suffer blackouts and hallucinations. This testimony was countered by the prosecution's psychiatric experts, who said that Daniel had not used a large enough amount of marijuana to induce hallucinations. They also said that Daniel had not been in a blackout state because he was able to walk to the car on his own when they had left Jack's house. The prosecution experts insisted that Daniel's act was volatile and carried out with intent to kill Jack. 30-year-old Daniel pleaded not guilty to the intentional murder of Jack Sweeney. Even though neither side denied Daniel's continuous consumption of alcohol over a full 24-hour period, intoxication is not a legal defense against a crime. The jury can consider how much he drank when deciding whether or not he was capable of making the intentional decision to kill, but in the end, the jury found Daniel guilty of both intentional murder and reckless manslaughter. He was sentenced to 15 years on the murder charge and 12 years to life on the manslaughter charge. He was sent to Eastern Correctional Facility in Napanock, New York. Well, I mean, he chose to drink that much. So I agree that intoxication shouldn't be a legal defense against committing crimes. I'm not sure how it can be both intentional and reckless, though. Yeah, I mean, like I said, if you can't handle drinking or smoking, don't do it, or at least know your limits. You intentionally altering your mind means that you need to be held accountable for every action you take afterwards. Absolutely. So what happened to him after that? His defense team filed an appeal with the state Supreme Court, saying that the judge incorrectly instructed the jury to consider both intentional and reckless homicide. They argued that you cannot both intentionally kill someone and at the same time act recklessly without a conscious thought bringing around the accidental death of the same person. The appeals court agreed that the act is either intended or not, and Daniel should not be punished twice for the same act. They reversed the manslaughter charge and reduced his sentence to only 15 years to life. As a result of this case, Police Commissioner Robert McGuire signed an order ending the requirement that police officers carry their guns even while off-duty. It should never have been a requirement for police officers to carry their weapons when off-duty. When they aren't on duty, they are regular civilians and make poor choices just like the rest of us. Exactly. The moment you take off that uniform, you are one of us. And don't drink on the job. That alone should cost you your badge. Agreed. Our adopted holiday of debauchery has created the conditions for violence since the beginning. News articles written in 1867 reported the St. Patrick's Day riots. In 1874, the headlines read, Death Rate Increased by the St. Patrick's Day Parade. In modern times, drunk drivers twice the legal limit wreak havoc on the streets, while fights, sexual assaults, robberies, and violence of all kinds are on the rise in celebration. Cities all across America have chosen to permanently shut down their parades and festivals due to the annual violence they bring. By all means, paint yourself green, have a couple drinks, cook some corned beef and cabbage, but don't get carried away into the mayhem. Instead, maybe consider celebrating the Irish holiday by making a difference. The Charitable Irish Society is the oldest Irish society in America. 
Since it was founded in 1737, it has aided immigrants in distress by providing grants for housing, education, health care, emergency food aid, and many other needed services. To learn more or get involved, visit www.charitableirishsociety.org. To view images, information, and sources from this case, visit our website at crimeandconjure.com. Research and writing for this episode was done by Stefan Sham. Editing of this episode by Denver Fortner Productions with music by Jordan Elena. Be sure to check out our Instagram at Crime and Conjure Podcast for our question of the week. Steph, what is our bonus conjure tip of the week? We have all heard of the Blarney Stone set in the wall of Blarney Castle near Cork, Ireland, right? They say kissing the stone will give you the gift of gab. In other words, you'll have the heightened communication, flattery, and persuasion skills. The Blarney Stone is made of carboniferous limestone. That is exclusively found in the UK. Before traveling to Ireland to kiss the famous stone, maybe try buying your own piece of limestone first. Oh wow, I've never heard of a kissing stone. I guess I learn something new every day. Thanks, Steph. We'll be back on Tuesday with another episode. Until Until next time, time, stay stay vigilant, vigilant, conjurers. And please drink responsibly.